have been in a summer series on Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus. You might know it as the book of Ephesians, all right? Um, so this afternoon, we're going to be in Ephesians chapter 4. If you want to go ahead and turn there, uh, that is in the last, like, fourth of the Bible, if you're not familiar with it. <clears throat> but um, this is kind of a big moment in the letter to the Ephesians, all right? So uh, if you don't know Paul, he's like a really, really big deal in the Bible. He uh, helped start a bunch of churches all throughout the New Testament. And so most of the letters that you see in your Bible, like Romans, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, um, they are letters to actual churches gathered in a place, right? And so they're kind of titled after where they were written to. And so this is Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus. And um, this is a big deal, today is, because this is kind of a turning point in this letter, all right? Um, the first three chapters of the Ephesians, um, of Ephesians, they are Paul introducing big ideas to these group of people. So these are people who had just become Christians, all right? They probably didn't grow up Jewish. They were Gentile people, so they weren't familiar with Jewish traditions or customs. And so Paul was writing to them, and in the first three chapters, he's saying, hey, you need to understand what has just happened because of Jesus. Like, this is what Jesus did. He took you, in uh, Ephesians 2, he talks about, you were dead, but Jesus has made you alive. That is what his work on the cross has done. And so um, he uses the word in Greek, apocalyptos. And apocalyptos, we would translate it apocalypse, and it sounds like the scary end of the world thing, but really all it means is an uncovering, all right? I don't know if you've ever been somewhere where someone that's like a really, really good teacher has said something, and it's like a light came on for you, and it was like the curtain was pulled away and you saw reality for what it was. The best example of this is probably the Wizard of Oz at the very end when the curtain's pulled away and you're like, it's not actually a wizard, right? That's an apocalypse. It's when something is uncovered. I know, spoiler, sorry. You've had like 60, 70 years to see it. Oh, my bad. Um, but that's an apocalypse, right? It's where something is uncovered and you see reality for what it is, not the illusion that it was presenting itself to be. And so that's the first three chapters of this letter. The rest of the letter is Paul telling them how to live in light of that reality, all right? It is him saying to them, hey, if all of this is true, this is what you should do as Christians in Ephesus. This is what this means for your lives, all right? So uh, if you're able to, I want to invite you to stand with me. It's a little bit longer, but uh, I'm going to read Ephesians chapter 4 verses 1 through 16. So this is from the pen of Paul to this church. He says, as a prisoner for the Lord then, so he wrote this letter from prison. He says, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. There's one Lord and one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. But to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. This is why it says, and now he's quoting from Psalm 68, okay, we're going to talk about this a little bit later, but he said, this is what Psalm 68 says, when he ascended on high, he took many captives and gave gifts to his people. Verse 9, what does he ascended mean except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions? 
He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and the teachers to equip his people for the works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and we become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. At that point, we will no longer be infants where we're tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people and their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is, Christ. From him, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. And that is the word of the Lord through the Apostle Paul to the church in Ephesus. Amen, amen, amen. All right, you can go ahead and have a seat. That's our text for this afternoon. So as I said, this is a big turning point in this letter, right? The first three chapters, Paul has been telling them about what Jesus did, who Jesus is, right? What his work on the cross means for them. Now, Paul is telling them, out of that reality, if that's true, this is how you should live your lives. And if you're a little bit like me, you don't really like being told what to do with your life, right? Like, I have this conversation with my dad a lot where um, he's like, hey, you never asked me for advice. And I'm like, well, that doesn't stop you from giving it to me all the time, right? I don't need to ask for it. I just need to bring something up to you, and you're going to give it to me, right? I don't really love, like, being told this is what you should do with your life. It feels kind of claustrophobic, But the truth is, is that when we really believe something, like when we really, really have our mind changed or something revealed to us is true, it changes how we act. If we actually believe it, it will change fundamentally how we act in light of it, all right? And so what Paul is doing is he is saying, in light of these big ideas about Jesus and the universe and God and you, this is what it means for you to live like this. So... Um, I want to play a video for us this afternoon. I don't always do this, but thank you, Sarah. She has it queued up for us. Beautiful. Um, But this is Tim Mackey. He started something called the Bible Project. He's a professor of Hebrew um, and Old Testament theology at Western Seminary. And um, this is him. Does anybody in here like art? Any art people in here? Yeah, y'all are way smarter than me. Or your brain just works on a different level because I don't really get art. Uh, but this is about art in a way that's actually understandable for someone like me. So if you don't like art, that's okay. If I get it, you can get it too, all right? But he's talking about Ephesians, and this is kind of how he talks about it with art. So Sarah, go ahead. He is brilliant and a genius. Um, but I love how his like, love and, and like, appreciation for Scripture brings that out, where it helps to see that, and it helps us to imagine that, and it helps us to ask the question, If everything he said in chapters one through three is true about Jesus, if he is Lord of all, if he is who he claimed himself to be, if he died in the way he died, what does that mean for us? That should illuminate the way we see the rest of the world. It should illuminate the way we see everything else. Because there's a new reality we're looking at. You see, that should move us to action. It should change, literally change our lives, how we treat each other, how we treat the people around us who we don't really like to be around. It should change everything. During 
COVID, I saw this played out on a national scale. During the presidential election, there was not a hot-button political issue that did not come up where basically the messaging was, if you think this, then you must be doing this. Or you should do this about this. As a people, like we would be lying if we didn't admit that we think that true belief in something requires action. It is just as true for if Jesus is Lord and we are actually his holy temple where his spirit has been promised to dwell. So with that being said, a couple things that Paul begins with as instruction for the church in Ephesus. This is what he's saying. In light of that reality, this is, this is what you are to be. This is what you are to do. This is who you are to be. Number, number one, the first thing. We are called to zealous unity through our diversity. When was the last time you were zealous for something? Right? If, you're, if you know me any kind of well, you're probably like, well, Brooks is zealous about pickleball. Yeah, I am. But when was the last time you were zealous for something, right? Nonetheless, unity in and amongst each other. You see, for the first three chapters, Paul has been saying that it is in our diversity that we get a kaleidoscopic picture of God. And that as we learn to be together through that diversity, the world gets to see a God that they almost can't even hope to believe is as good as he says he is. Something we used to say around here a lot, we stopped saying it as much, not because we don't think it's true. I guess we just forgot to say it. I don't know. Matt can answer. I don't know. But uh, we used to say something a lot, and that was that we are called to unity, not uniformity. And we still very much believe that is true, that we are not supposed to be cookie-cutter, spitting-image clones of each other, but that we are to strive for and fight for unity because that is the way of the church of Jesus Christ. See, um, one of the things that Paul does here that's beautiful, if you know anything about Hebrew numberology, does anybody know any important numbers in the Hebrew world? Seven? Yeah, seven's really important, right? What does seven represent? Anyone? Completion, perfection. All right, Sarah, can I get that slide? I might have sprung it on you. Amazing. All right, so this is Ephesians 4, right? Um, And if you'll notice, there are seven times where Paul lists us to be one. Seven times. He says, be one. Seven times. As if to say, be the perfect, completed unity of Jesus in your diversity as the church. I don't think that was... Incidental. In fact, I think Paul knew exactly what he was doing. He was a Pharisee trained in the way of the Jewish schooling, and so he knew this. And so we are to be deeply, deeply committed to life together. Through the ups and downs, through the difficulties, through the anxieties, through the failings, we are to be the people where people go to because they know they have nowhere else to go. Something we've been talking a lot about in our book club. We're reading something called Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis. And um, something we've talked a lot about for a couple books now is just the need for a culture of confession in and amongst the church. Like what if when someone needed something to confess, like they wanted more than anything, someone to see them and to love them in spite of their shortcomings, the church was the first place they thought of. What if that was our identity? What if that was our reputation? I think we can do it. 
And I think that is a vision of a life that is worthy of the calling that we've been given, as Paul calls it. He says, you have been made into the family of God. You are the temple of God. In the Old Testament, they built temples as close as they could to the sky because they thought that's where God's presence was. Now, Jesus has come along and he said, you are the temple of God, the gathered people together, living in unity. You are the temple of God. When when people want to encounter God's presence, they go to you. They look at how you love each other. I'm curious, what would it look like if that was the church's reputation? See, just like the shadow series that Tim talked about with the artists, the perspective that we have gained through the first three chapters of this letter, they are meant to help us stop, reflect, and see the world differently, and then realize that when we're looking at the world like that, we see that our greatest priority is the glorification of Jesus by how we keep the bond of unity together. That's what Paul's telling us to do. Secondly, um, Jesus has given gifts to the church and to the world. That's something that's pretty prominent in this passage. And something that's almost more important than you just knowing that is that if you are here, you are one of those gifts to the church and to the world. You see, in this passage, the gifts he's talking about is not something that we like acquire or like an attribute that he gives us. It is you, like personally you, the way you're wired, the things you like, the way you relate to people. You are a gift to the church and to the world, and you are how God wants to work and advance his mission. The first three quarters of the Bible is about God trying to work through a people to bring redemption and blessing to a world that is devastated by the curse of sin. One of the most interesting parts of that, however, is that the most, by far, frequent way that God works in the Old Testament is not through a priest of the temple. It's through people with everyday vocations, everyday lives, working the grind of a nine-to-five in the ancient Near East. David was called to a vocational political office, Look at the disciples. There were fishermen, carpenters, people who did not forsake what they were doing to make a living in order to go join the priesthood. God almost never works through those people. Of course, he works through them. But you know what I'm saying? The, mission, the protagonists of the stories in the Old Testament, they're almost never priests. And so, yes, a priest is a unique and beautiful calling, and it is weighty, and it is important. But God wants to use you because you are a gift that he has given the world. Like he wants to bless the world through you if you're here. I really, really believe that. See, we are called the priests of God. We are the people who administer the blessing of God's presence to a world who is hurt and broken and in desperate need of it. Now, Figuring out what to do as you administer the blessing of God, that's a tricky thing. And if I could tell you what you should do with your career and with your life, you'd probably pay me a lot of money, right? (laughs) It's a tough challenge. Um, But I have some good news for you, hopefully at least, if you're trying to figure that out. Um, If you're asking, who am I? Where do I fit in the world? Or you're just genuinely curious about what kind of gift you might be to the world and to the church. Um, then next week, after service, this is the first time we're announcing this, 
Um, it makes it sound like it's a really big deal. Matt's going to dinner, and it's going to help people with this, okay? Which is a really big deal. It's really cool. But if you've ever gone through it with him, there's something called APEST, all right? And this is a way of looking at Ephesians 4 that looks at apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers. So the idea is that each of us fits into one of those five gifts, all right? Paul says that we as people are those gifts. Now, some of you, when you hear apostle, I'm not trying to say that you're like the apostle Paul. It's just like a gift to the church, which means that you are wired a certain way, all right? Uh, People who are apostolic gifting most likely are people you see on Shark Tank, right? Very entrepreneurial. But you'll learn more about that next week if you go to dinner with Matt, okay? Because after service, Matt's going to dinner, and one of the things that he's actually like really passionate about and really loves doing is um, helping people like figure out where they fit into the world as far as a gift to the world and to the church. And so he'll pray with you, and he'll kind of teach through some of this exercise. And if you're interested in it at all, just talk to Matt after service. Um, he would love, and like he's awesome at it. Like we've gone through it a couple times, and um, I don't know about you, but it is so helpful to understand like, oh, this is why I'm this way. Has anybody ever had that moment where like something's read about you and you're like, oh, this totally makes sense, right? Um, I'll never forget when we first went through APEST and I realized that it was actually God's work to just be nice to people and invite them places. That always felt like a less than part of God's kingdom. I don't know about you, but I, for me, the way I'm wired, I always felt like I was a less than part of God's kingdom because my gifts didn't look like the pastors I saw growing up. I was kind of goofy, really extroverted. I didn't think I was serious enough to do something like this. And then when I realized, like, no, you as this, like, you are a gift to the world, and God wants to use you specifically to do these things, it was a huge blessing to me. And so if you're interested in that at all, talk to Matt. He's going to go to dinner somewhere. I don't know where. Y'all can pick, I guess. Have you decided anywhere? Matt's open. (laughs) Yeah, right. Okay. Um, But... That's next week. You can figure that out then. This week, um, I don't know what your calling is uh, as far as what you should do with your job. What I do know is that Paul thinks our first calling is to pursue holiness through unity together. That's the first calling on all of our lives. God's desire is for all of us to know him and to follow him. On top of that, whether we are selling lemonade or working in logistics or selling IT software or building digital marketing platforms or healing people through therapy, the call on your life is to live holy and to do your job as if Jesus himself were doing it. That means having really, really good business ethics, not taking advantage of people, striving for unity where you can. That is the calling on our life no matter what our career is, all right? So, um, that being said, the third kind of goal of this, or the third thing from this, the point of all of this, the point of uh, unity, the point of our gifts to the church, is for a mature body of Christ. That's ultimately what Paul wants to see. Maturity is not someone who is back and forth, back and forth, onto this thing, onto this thing, trying this thing, trying this thing. It is a mature body. Now, I don't know about you. But um, I just turned 29, not 30 yet. Everyone says when you get there, it's downhill. I don't believe them, all right? Um, Despite that, my maturing body doesn't feel as good as it did when I was 21, right? I got a little bit more aches, 
right? My calves get a little, give out on me. I know, I, I know I have it coming, okay? Trust me. I know you, anyone who's older is like, oh, you're complaining now. Just wait. I get it, all right? That being said, uh, when I hear a mature body, I, that, I don't always have a positive association in my brain. Uh, but I think what Paul is getting at here is the maturity that comes from, have you ever like had a grandparent or someone who's older that you looked up to who just the fact that they like, took time to bless you changed everything about your day? I genuinely believe that we all want the blessing of someone from a stage further down the road than us. And to be a mature body is to, is to offer the opportunity to give that to people. To be a church body who is not on to one thing and on to the next thing and all over the place and scatterbrained and anxious, it is a body that is mature and can give its blessing to whoever walks through our doors. Because we are firm in the love of the Lord. That's the point of all the gifts. That's the point of all of this. It's to reach that maturity, to live into that, and to be a place where when people come and they take the bread and the juice, they experience the tangible love and blessing of God. So, um, as we wrap up this evening, I don't know if any of this was apocalyptic, as Paul calls it, for you, if there's any eye-opening moments or not. Uh, regardless of that, I want you to invite you to ponder as we take communion. We're going to take communion. Uh, if you've never taken communion here before, we have it here on the table. You can come, um, break the bread, receive the juice, and um, we're going to have like two to three minutes of just prayer, all right, as you meditate, reflect. But I want to invite you to meditate and reflect on much like the art pieces, how am I living in light of the reality of who Jesus is? Has it changed my perception? Has it changed how I treat and view the people I don't necessarily like being around? Are my preferences, am I placing them over unity? Or am I someone who is giving my life for the maturity of the body of Christ? All right? So I'm going to pray, then we're going to head to communion. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to do this. We thank you that you are good and that um, if there's someone here tonight who has struggled with feeling like they have a purpose in this world, that you tell us that we are a gift to the world. You've made us that way on purpose. And so, Jesus, I just pray that like, we would come to believe that and accept that and know that and that you would empower us into action on behalf of you you would help us to advance your mission, to actually live into the unity that you're calling your church to live into. So Jesus, we thank you. Um, we pray these things in your name. Amen.